Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum Radio Show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. Well, last week I recorded a great interview with my new friend Nathan Barksy, and we talked about MIT and the Octet Collaborative and what God is doing there in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I felt like we just got started in on the conversation and we ran out of time. So I've invited him back to continue that conversation today. Nathan? Welcome back to the show. Good to be with you again, Roy. Thanks for having me back. Nathan, last time we talked about the unique intellectual environment of Cambridge with Harvard and MIT and sure. all those other colleges and universities yeah. and how your ministry, the Octet Collaborative, is trying to create community to explore the mission of pursuing human flourishing together. I'd like to pick up our conversation there and push ahead. Sure. Sounds great. All right. Well, a while back, you and I talked about a fascinating essay called Cities and Ambition by Paul Graham. Oh, yeah. Where he described how different cities tend to foster and emphasize different things. And for our listeners, a couple of examples are for New York, they tend to emphasize wealth. For Los Angeles, they tend to emphasize fame. For Cambridge, right. they emphasize education and ideas. Silicon right. Valley emphasizes changing the world. And I had a chance to read some of his other essays, which are all excellent, by the way. I, yeah, he's, I, he's a great writer. I loved reading what he had to write. He even has one called How to Write Simply, where he just basically says, this is how I write, and this is why I think it's so effective. And so, yeah, I totally recommend him. In one of them called Billionaires Build, he shares his insight after studying many billionaires from around the world that their most common trait, as he puts it, is they make something people want. Now, as followers of Christ, we can't really make something that people want. It's, it's almost more like we teach people what they really need, according yeah. to how the Bible has described it. But with that context, how do you think those ideas should affect our approach in evangelism and apologetics? How do we reach people with the truth that their real value doesn't come from wealth or fame or knowledge or achievements, but that their highest value really comes from knowing Christ and being reconciled to God? Sure, yeah. You're right. We don't make something that people want. I think that we are called to hold up Christ as being supremely beautiful and mm. lovable. So we do show people what they need, but I even might say we show people what they are made to love mm. I like more that. than anything else. And here's the thing is one idea that I've found very powerful as a pastor in Cambridge, which I would say in most secular and urban contexts today including Cambridge, but yeah. not only Cambridge. The concept of sin, like that word has kind of left mm. our vocabulary yeah. as a culture, yeah. or at least it means something very different. You know, if you talk to people about, you know, you're a sinner in need of a savior, you kind of get a blank stare. <laughs> but I think people do resonate 
with the idea that we love the wrong things or that we love certain things more than we should. You know, this is an idea in Christianity. This goes back, well, I think it's in Scripture, but Augustine is the one that I think developed it in a really powerful way, at least Mm. for the Western Church. Mm. When he talked about the notion that before he recognized that God was his creator and that he was made for a relationship with him, he was being pulled in all these directions by his love of things that God had made. Yeah, and Augustine, <laughs> he was like a Solomon. He really lived it yeah. up. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. I mean, he, he really pursued yes. what he called the lying loves. And basically what he says is everything that God has made is good. The God made a good world, mm-hmm. and everything in this world that God made is good. But these things lie to us in that they tell us that they're not just good, but that they can give us the kind of satisfaction that we can really only find in God. So these are things like money, or sex, or power, or our work. These are really good things. I'm actually convinced that it's actually the best things that God has made, which can be the most dangerous mm-hmm. when they become idols, yes. right? When they assume that role in our lives and in our hearts that God is supposed to have. And that's actually a concept that I've found. You know, I can talk to people at MIT in those terms. It allows me to say, you know, your work, you're trying to gain all of your meaning and all of your identity out of being at the top of your field through your research and your work and so on. And it is just driving you into the dust and it's causing you to drive everybody who works for you into the ground (laughs) along with you, right? It's doing all of this damage. Your relationships are falling apart. You're not Mm. sleeping. Mm. And they can say, oh, I can see that. And I don't have to tell them your work is bad and you should stop doing it. Mm. I can simply say you were made to love God first and foremost, and then to love your work for the ways that it points you to him Mm, and points beyond itself. And so it's not that you have to stop loving your work. You just need to relativize it, prioritize it properly. And that's what Augustine really helps us to understand. And That's great. I think we talked last time about Romans 1. God has put these things in people's hearts and minds. And when you can reach in there and connect with something that you know is already there, that can be a fantastic way to reach people because it's probably different than the message that they're getting from a lot of other sources, which is, you're a workaholic, this is bad, and they're right. Right. I don't feel that, you know, something deep yeah. in them is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is good. <laughs> Why are you yeah. telling me it's bad? I'm gaining meaning from this. I'm making exactly. the world a better place. I'm helping people. Those are all true. I mean, I've, I've said this in sermons before. And by the way, here, I should give credit where credit is due. I think I'm getting some of these concepts from pastors like Tim Keller, mm. but also secular writers like David Foster Wallace, mm. who wrote mm. this fantastic commencement speech for Kenyon College that he delivered in 2005. Mm which has some of these concepts in it. Mm. The basic idea is that any created thing demands sacrifices from us. Mm. And we may not worship little statues and figurines anymore, and we may not put physical offerings of food and (laughs) things like that in front of them, but they demand that we sacrifice. So our work demands that we sacrifice our time and our energy. If it's a relationship, you you can find yourself sacrificing everything Mm. for... Even a good relationship, like your wife, your husband, your children. And one thing that I've been able to tell people is Jesus is unique in that Jesus is the only God who does not demand that you sacrifice everything for him. He's the one who sacrificed everything for you. Yeah. 
You know, he's the only God that doesn't demand that you feed him. He feeds you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It reminds me of a time when I was at Intel and we were going on this leadership retreat and probably Mm -hmm. probably 250 people in the room. And the leader of the retreat said, appreciate you guys all taking a whole week off to do this. Uh, Show of hands, like who gave up something really big to be here? And people started raising their hands and said, hey, you know, I gave up my daughter's birthday to be here. And, and then somebody's like, oh, yeah, well, well, I gave up my 25th wedding anniversary to be here. <laughs> and somebody else like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, well, my dad died yesterday, and I'm not at his funeral to be here. And, be, and it was just, it was crazy that there was this competition about yeah. how much people had sacrificed to be at this thing. And it was really a light bulb going off in my mind at the time of, that's an idol. Just yeah, that exactly. one thing, I sacrificed more than you. It is something that I think ties into the human nature and our depravity of who can sacrifice the most to try and earn their way to God. And so that right, example right, right. of how you've said, you can never sacrifice enough. It's exactly. Christ that sacrificed himself for us. What a, what a beautiful yeah. picture. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to change gears a little bit and talk still on that idea of this hyper-intellectual environment that we've talked about in Cambridge, MIT, Harvard. What has been your experience of how the Bible fits into faith in that context? Is a biblical worldview something that tends to lend certainty or credibility to faith in that environment? Or is there just so much resistance to the Bible being the Word of God and absolutely true that maybe it's perceived as more of a hindrance or a liability? What's been your experience in that? That's a great question. You know, and I wouldn't say there's a single answer to that. Hmm. You know, ironically, or maybe it's not ironic, um, (laughs) I would say that I get the greatest resistance to treating the Bible like an authority, like an authoritative source of knowledge or wisdom or, or as God's word. Yeah from people who grew up in Christianity and have rejected it. Interesting. Wow. And, of course, for lots of different reasons. Mm. You know, bad experience with with the church sometimes or different things. Sometimes it is intellectual hurdles. You know, Mm. there are people who come to MIT who feel like it's part of their story of growth and maturity that they've outgrown Mm. these fairy tales. and and now they're progressed beyond that. Yeah. (laughs) Now, what I find, again, this isn't always the case, but... Often when you dig into things with somebody who thinks that they've progressed past the Bible, you, you find out that their understanding of the Bible never really got past, you know, kind of a grade school kind of Bible story level. And they probably never really had the opportunity to learn how to read it as a whole, mm. you know, really study how it fits together. Mm. One great thing about Cambridge and probably other university towns, there is a lot of intellectual curiosity. I do run into a lot of people who are willing to have the conversation about, well, so why can we trust the Bible? Mm. Why should I believe that any of this is true? Why should I believe that? And I've been able to point them to some great resources that just talk about, well, you know, we actually know quite a lot about these texts and how old they are and where they came from. And it's pretty amazing how they all fit together. Mm. It's fascinating that you get more pushback from people who have been exposed to the Bible and then, you know, maybe had a bad experience. And if they do have an immature and maybe incorrect understanding of the Bible, 
and they've progressed beyond that, well, maybe that's a good thing, because <laughs> they've rejected that false impression yeah. of the Bible, and so sure. now they can be open to a true impression. Mm-hmm. Then also the biblical worldview. Do you spend time trying to explain a biblical worldview? Is that an asset in your toolbox of trying to open communications and establish understanding with people in that environment? Yeah, and in a couple different ways. You know, one is that I think that the biblical concept of sin, I said before, that's a vocabulary word that we've lost. But the teaching that humanity and the world we live in is fallen. Mm. Boy, that helps make sense of a lot uh, in the world. (laughs) I mean, the idea that we live in a good but fallen creation, Mm. that's very different from the reductive positions that you get from kind of the far right and far left Mm. in a lot of the dialogue. Because it's, on the one hand, you get humanity is basically good and we're making progress all the time and things are getting better and better. And then you just kind of look around or study a little history and say, that's not really what's going on here. We don't seem to be getting better. Uh, In fact, we might be getting worse. Yes. But then on the other hand, the opposite extreme isn't true either, that there's just simply no good at all. And the whole thing has to be rejected and, you know, we have to go hide. Yes. And so what I find is that a, a biblical worldview that says that, you know, God created a good world, but it has been marred. Mm. by sin. One of my friends, Dick Kies, who founded the Labrie that's at Southboro in Massachusetts, he refers to humanity as glorious ruins. (laughs) And it's a great, (laughs) it's just a great metaphor. You know, there's glory here, but it's in ruins. Mm. Um, You know, and, and you could say something similar about creation. So that resonates. The goodness of work is another thing. Mm. You know, again, I mean, especially at a place like MIT, being able to talk to people about how their work is a good thing that they really are called to, that they were created for, mm. but it's not an ultimate thing. Oh, and good. so it's not going to be that ultimate source of significance mm. for them. And it's not going to save the world. It may make the world a better place, but it's not going to save the world. Mm. I like that focus that seems to be a part of that community here in Portland. Mm-hmm. There's a really big emphasis on social justice issues. Oh, yeah. issues. Yeah. And I think the church does itself a disservice when they don't acknowledge that that longing for things to be right mm-hmm. is a Christian thing. <laughs> you know, it's, yes. it's because God created a good world, it's because it's been marred by sin, and there's a redemption to be done here. Yeah, God gave you that longing for the vulnerable to be protected, yes. and for people to be treated fairly, and for justice to be served. That comes from God. That God's not against that. And I think we miss an opportunity when we don't acknowledge the source of that good thing in fallen people. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, what kind of questions are people typically asking in Cambridge about science in the Bible or about philosophy? And what are the questions that non-Christians are asking? And what are the questions that Christians are asking? Yeah, well, you brought up social justice, and that's a huge one. Mm. Because you look around, and we have some real problems. Yes. (laughs) Problems that people want to solve. And so, you know, non-Christians, I think, turn to the church and, you know, are asking, does the church have anything to say about this? Mm. And can the church say anything in a united fashion, or is it just chaos? (laughs) 
coming from the church. And, and in fact, is the church any better on any of these issues mm. than the rest of the world? And churches in Cambridge are doing a lot of work and a lot of soul searching mm. on those things. So questions around racial reconciliation, right. questions around sexual identity, mm-hmm. both in terms of gender and then other questions around sexual identity. Mm. Those are some of the most challenging conversations to have. You know, because this is a place where I think a biblical worldview does run into some really serious pushback in a modern context. Yes. You know, because a biblical worldview says things like, we are created by a God who gives us our meaning and gives us our identity and who has the right and the authority to tell us what's good and what's not. And there are some things that are not up to us to define Mm. for ourselves. And that's one of the most offensive things you can say in a modern context. And, you know, I would say, and this goes back to your question about the Bible also. Again, a lot of the strongest pushback that I get on all of these questions is from people who grew up as Christians and have walked away from their faith. And a lot of time it is because of a really bad experience that they had in the church where they really had some bad teaching or some bad pastoral care. Right. And... You know, I do want to emphasize, like, the first step in those relationships is not to work through an apologetics lesson, <laughs> right? I mean, it's it's not... Yes. You have to start by listening to the person and getting to know them and treating them like the image-bearing human being that they are. Mm. And these are some long and long-term relationships mm. that have to take place. Again, ideally, in community. Right. And hopefully that's the community of the church, or it's a community like the Octet Collaborative, but you got to be able to tell people you have a place, you belong here, even before you believe, even before you necessarily agree, or even if you never do. Right. You have a place with us. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that because that was one of the things that we have found in launching and growing this apologetics ministry here in Portland. Yeah. yeah. We were expecting the, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris kind of, you know, rabid atheist arguments. Right. And we saw a lot of other apologetics ministries go before us with this sort of machine gun arsenal of we can tear down any false argument Mm -hmm. and win. And when we actually got into it, it was like, wow, we're encountering a lot more deconversion stories mm-hmm. and we are mm-hmm. atheist stories it was a yeah. lot more of people like yeah i grew up in the church i went to bible college you know i was even a pastor mm. or you know or whatever it is mm. and then this thing happened that is a very long patient compassionate engagement not a machine gun i'm going to tear down your argument style we have absolutely yeah. found that to be a million times more effective than some of the other approaches. So that's comforting to hear. Yeah. So this has been great, Nathan. Let me end with a few personal questions. Sure. We talked about this. You have three kids in the public school system in Somerville. Right. I'm sure that the curriculum there is, is probably similar to what it is in Portland. Sure. What kind of influence are you seeing there kind of experiencing as a dad you know, with your kids growing up and the education system, what kind of influence are you seeing there? What kind of struggles exist in that community in Somerville? What kind of questions are your kids asking, et cetera? Um, So we've been fortunate to have our kids grow up surrounded by a really strong, healthy church community Mm. also, and one in which 
we don't feel like we're addressing questions like, can we trust the Bible? Are science and faith in conflict? What about sexual identity? You know, those things as they come up, we're definitely not facing those alone. And that's been huge. That's been really important that my kids know, hey, this isn't just like my mom and dad against the school. Right. You know, but there's a community of adults who love us and friends that we see and and hang out with on a regular basis. And, you know, we've kind of taken those things head on and said, all right, we know you're going to be talking about this in school, so we're going to talk about it in the church. Right. So, of course, the church has done a good job of developing a kind of age-appropriate way of going about those things. Mm. As far as being parents, the school makes all of the curriculum available to parents so we can see what our kids are doing. And we can talk about it with them before and as they go through it and say, do you have questions? And every family has to make this decision. And I don't think there's one right one. For my wife and I, we have found greater benefit to having our kids in the public schools and therefore daily confronted with the fact that there's lots of people that don't believe what we believe. Mm. And just having to recognize that, just realize, yeah, we live in a pluralist society. And for us, that's been a benefit. Mm. Not every family will make that decision in the same way, and that's okay. For us, we feel like we can supplement and talk about, you know, say, okay, so here's a place where there's a clear difference between what we've been teaching you and what you're hearing in school. And we can talk through those things, and it's gone well. I totally agree that there's a very broad spectrum of good choices, and it's up to each family. Yeah. Probably the most consistent thing that I've seen is the benefit of some kind of tested faith in our kids. Mm -hmm. What I've seen, almost going back to those deconversion stories or those kids who have walked away from the church and maybe become the most vocal, hostile opponents now to Christianity, Mm -hmm. were those who... It was never okay to question the church. It was never okay to have a doubt. It was never okay to right. to voice a question about what you were curious about or what didn't make sense. Those are the kids that are the most vulnerable. Yeah, because I think that generates a, uh, a certain fragility in one's faith where it makes it appear that faith is only sustainable as long as it's never challenged. Exactly. And eventually it's going to be. Yep. I was talking with a guy at work, just kind of sharing the gospel, and I was reading the Bible on an airplane flight with him. He's like, oh, you're reading the Bible? I didn't think you'd be the type of person to read the Bible. And I said, oh, really? Why not? And he's like, well, you know, you're a smart guy. You're very intellectually rigorous in everything that you do. I I wouldn't have thought you would have believed the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it gave me an opportunity to say, well, actually, you know what? From the moment I got saved, right before I went to MIT, I have challenged my faith. And I think the faith that I have today is where it is because it's been challenged every step of the way. And I said, and right. I, I see this now in engineering and science and, you know, high-tech semiconductor manufacturing. It's the things that are tested and survive mm. that are mm-hmm. the strongest. Yeah. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, hey, again, Nathan, this is I we could do another 10 shows. <laughs> I I love uh talking with you and just hearing your thoughts and experiences on, you know, what's happening there in Cambridge. And so again, thank you for doing this show and many blessings. Yeah. There. You're so welcome. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, how about you? 
Are there lying loves in your life that have promised fulfillment and satisfaction but failed to deliver? Do you feel a tug in your heart to be closer to God, but you don't know how to take that first step? You can send me an email at info at theambassadorsforum.com. I'd love to hear where you are in your journey, pray with you, and help you find answers to any questions you might have. And finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. If you're still searching, I pray that God would help you find a faith in Him that finally brings ultimate fulfillment in your life. And if you've already found that faith, then I pray that God would raise you up and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.